I think it's just one of those mornings. There's a lot going on, and we've got a lot of scripture to talk about today. Um, well, when I was, you want to, well, we also, yeah, I'm going to do the best with the slides today, too, so uh, go one more. So when I was in college, I remember we had a rule book, like a student handbook, right, that told us how to live in the dorm. And the boys' dorm had a, was seven stories with an elevator. And I remember there was this specific rule that talked about bicycles were not allowed in the elevator or on top of the elevator. And I remember thinking and being like, there's got to be a story here, right, of why this rule was needed. <laughs> that is not something I would have ever considered, putting a bicycle on top of an elevator. Right? It was something, a rule that wouldn't be needed probably in an office building, but when you have a dorm full of 19-year-old boys, clearly that had been an issue in the past. So today, as we look at the laws in Deuteronomy 19 through 25, God is speaking within a specific culture and a time, and it looks very different from ours today. So it can feel really uncomfortable for readers of the 21st century to be reading and unpacking what God is teaching his people in the Iron Age. And I find it hard to sit with some of these verses that appear to talk about wiping out nations, about taking women as captives, and forcing a woman to marry her rapist. Yet I have found that the more that I study and meditate on God's law, I find a God whose character is not only just, but is full of love and compassion. He is the God who sees those who are overlooked by others. He hears the cry of the oppressed, and he speaks against sexual violence. And yes, he brings wrath and judgment on evil. How can the oppressed go free if evil is not dealt with? We need a God who is just. Without his justice, mercy means so much less. So this, all right, there's so much more to go over in these chapters, and I encourage you to read them on your own and sit with them and ask questions when things don't sit right with you because we are going to go through them much faster than I would like. I could easily talk for hours about any one of these chapters. Just ask my husband, because he has heard it for weeks now, right? But we are going to do our best, and we're going to try and get out of here in a reasonable time, so we've got our kids here today, and the toddlers will be picked up on time. Lord willing. <laughs> so let's look at the ways that God instructs his people to live rightly with one another. So we start our passage today. It begins, he's, God is giving instructions. He's really creating a basic justice system. And it starts with instructions on what to do with accidental death. So these laws in Deuteronomy 19, 1 through 13, he says you must not spill innocent blood. And he gives instructions again for sitting up these cities of refuge for those who have committed accidental death. We've heard about these in, before. Right? And he gives an example here of what that looks like. Someone who is cutting wood and the axe head flies off and kills someone. He says, this is not a capital offense. This was an accident. There was no intent. And so that person can flee to the cities of refuge and find rest from human judgment. But he also says, however, if someone is guilty of murder right, with intent, they cannot remain in these cities of refuge because they have spilled innocent blood and they must pay for it. You know, the next slide, yeah. So then we see laws concerning witnesses. And you, it says you must not change your neighbor's boundary marker because the Lord God gave you this land, right? So in other words, God is providing for you, so don't cheat your neighbors. And he talks about we can't have a single witness. That's not enough to determine guilt. 
The matter needs to be thoroughly investigated if someone's accusing someone of something. And if the witness is found to give false testimony, right, perjury in our world, they are to receive what they intended to do to the accused. Justice will be done and false testimony is not allowed. And to safeguard this, you can only, you need to have more than one witness. So then we go into laws concerning going to war. And I want to read Deuteronomy 21 through 4 together. So when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Right? They can't go into battle without the Lord. It makes me think of, if you know the story of David and Goliath, right? The army of Israel is terrified, and then David comes and says, I know who this God is. And so he can go fight this giant with a slingshot because God is the one who brings victory. And this is what God is telling his people, right? The priest comes and prays for them before they go out into battle. And then, the next slide, the officers are to say, right? Those who have built a new house, you should go home. And you should enjoy it because you might die in battle. And if you've planted a new vineyard, you should go home and enjoy it. And those of you who are engaged and not yet married, you should go home and get married and enjoy that. And even those who are afraid and faint-hearted, you too go home so you don't bring others, uh, that fear to others, right? They, and then after that, then they appoint unit commanders to lead the troops. Next slide. And the, the battle belongs to the Lord. But God also gives good gifts to his people, and they should enjoy them. The realities of war are very real for these people, but so is God's power. And I think it's interesting to note here that being a soldier isn't the only thing that brings honor to God. There are seasons in all of our lives and times when being on the front lines is not the right place for you. We should enjoy what God has given us, and that might look different depending on your life stage and your personality. Obedience does not always mean going into battle. And then we could turn to some specific laws. And first we talk about what God says for wars with distant nations. And so he says when you have a distant nation, you first are to offer peace to these nations and cities. And if that offer is accepted, the people are basically treated like prisoners of war. They come and they can do forced labor within your camp, but their lives right, are preserved. But if they don't accept, then the Lord will turn them over to Israel. And they are instructed to kill every male, but take the women, children, and cattle as plunder. So the ideal is peace, but if people don't turn to God, God will turn on them. So hold this in your mind, because we're going to come back to this. So then we turn to laws concerning the Canaanite nations. So these specific people who are in the land that God is saying he's giving to the nation of Israel. And he says these nations are to be annihilated. This is God's judgment on the evil being done and the gods that are being worshipped by these people. They are to wipe these people out because their gods are causing them to sin. And this is hard to read. And I think that it should be hard to read as followers of Jesus because we don't live this way. 
And it makes me ask, what kind of a God asks his people to kill entire people groups, to kill women and children? Is it working? Great. Thank you. Uh, That sounds pretty evil to me. But I think that we need to examine this further. And we also need to understand the culture that God has come into is a tribal nation, and I don't think that they would have the same response to reading these instructions. In fact, I think the mercy of offering peace stands out all the more because that this is the expected norm dealing with neighboring nations. There are still places in our world today that live this way. But God is not asking his people to commit ethnic cleansing. God is placing judgment on the deities of these nations. And while they are commanded to not leave anything that breathes, when we see the people of Israel begin to fulfill these laws and to conquer these nations in the book of Joshua, one of the very first things we read is the story of Rahab a prostitute in the city of Jericho who chooses to follow God because she has heard about what he has done and her faith saves her and her family and they become part of Israel. And later in Joshua, we see an Israelite man, Achan, who disobeys God and he and his family are totally wiped out. I see that God is not giving instructions for an ethnic cleansing, but a cleansing of sin. And I still have questions about this idea of wiping out people, especially, right, when you're talking about women and even children. But when we see scripture as a whole, we see that you can become part of this nation of Israel by following the ways of Yahweh. And you can face judgment even as an ethnic Jew when you don't obey. The blessing to Abraham was always to be a blessing to the world. And even in these teachings today, we see that this command about battles, it comes in the middle of teachings on justice and protection of life. God does not want innocent blood shed, and he gives his people laws for how to deal with the loss of life. So I think it's really important that we study these challenging passages in context of how God teaches us to relate to other people. And even in these difficult laws about wiping out people, God says, don't chop down all the fruit trees because they aren't doing evil. And he gives instructions for them to not destroy the land. God is bringing judgment on these other gods, not the trees, not creation. So I think to help clarify this, I wanted to look at Joshua 9. So we start out in 9 verse 1. It says, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. So these are all the nations, right, that God has said to wipe out entirely. And they know who God is. They know his power, and yet they choose to fight against him, and they trust their own power. But the people of Gibeon have this different idea. They pretend to be a far-off nation. They dress in old clothing, and they put old wineskins on, and they really sell it. And they come to Joshua and to Israel, and they ask for a peace treaty, like the law we just read. And then they're successful. They trick Israel into thinking they're from a, diff- from a far-off nation and not a nearby nation in Kin. And when they're asked why, they say this. So they answer Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. 
So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. These are the very people, right, who God, they should have been annihilated. And yet, when they heard about God, they were the ones who chose to follow God. Those who opposed God lost. And the ones who turned to God became part of Israel. And Joshua made the Gibeonites into woodcutters and water carriers for the altar of God. And it says that the, to this day, they're still there. They were treated with dignity and mercy because they feared the Lord, even though they were part of these nations that God said to wipe out. God has always welcomed those who obey his commands. So our passage in Deuteronomy today goes into some more laws than about murder and how you treat captives. And so I think this is, really helps us understand the way God values life and puts warfare and these teachings in the middle of these other teachings about murder and captives. So we see these laws concerning unsolved murder. And if the body is found and there's no one to blame, he gives instructions the Levites and the judges are supposed to take a heifer who's never worked, and they use the blood of the heifer to atone for the loss of life. And then we get these specific laws about God says how you are to treat female captives. So I want to read this together, chapter 21, 10 to 14. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and shave her head, trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So in this case, the woman is given dignity. She's leaving the old and she's becoming part of the nation of Israel. I believe that's the meaning of this getting rid of the old clothing and cutting her hair. She's preparing to be part of Israel. And she is given space to grieve. Only after she has had this is this man allowed to sleep with her and make her his wife. This teaching means that this man cannot profit from this. She is either his wife or she may go free, but she cannot be used for his gain or pleasure alone. And on reading this law, at first, it feels really upsetting. But think again about tribal culture where raping and pillaging are the norm. On one hand, I wish God said, don't take any captives. But he came into this culture, and the reality is this is a common practice. So God does not outright deny the practice of taking captives. But he demands that they are to be treated with dignity and given value. God does not allow his people to commit sexual violence against women. He comes into a culture, and he asks them to practice his values, which is giving human dignity. So when God instructs the taking of women and children as plunder, this is how they are to do it, treating them as people made in the image of God with the rights and humanity not to be used for their own personal gratification. These are truly radical requirements. Then we see some laws concerning children. We're given a case study. A man has two wives and he loves one more than the other, a common story in biblical history, right? 
But God says he still needs to give the rights of his firstborn to the firstborn. He does not get to change based on his preferences. He still has to honor his wife and children. And then the, excuse me, then there is a law about a rebellious son who does not listen to his parents. And it says he is a glutton and a drunkard. And he is to be brought to the elders and stoned to death. And all the men of the city will stone him to death. So in this culture, a man's value is in his strength. He is a soldier or he works the fields. These people are working the land for food to survive. So someone who is a drunkard and a glutton, he's stealing from other people. He is not doing the work to provide for his family or his community. And God deems this a criminal act, punished by death. And notice it says here that all the men are to stone him. And I think the idea is this is to be an example that you are not to behave this way. And finally, in this section, we see what you do with a criminal's remains. And he says to bury the criminal the same day, and you do not leave his remains to be exposed. It's the one left exposed on a tree is cursed by God. And if this verse sounds familiar, it is because it is repeated in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Jesus took the curse on him at the cross, and Jesus made a way for us to dwell with God forever. Even here in the Old Testament, the law is foreshadowing what is to come, and even criminals need to be treated with dignity. All right, so our next section goes over living rightly within relationships and preserving life. So we get some uh, laws in Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 8, of pra practical ways to live and honor the life of animals and of humans. You are called to take care of your neighbor's property, even if it costs you something. And here God even talks about not killing a mother bird in the wild. God cares for all of his creation, and he respects, expects his people to do this as well. And this was way before conservation was a thing. I love this little verse thrown in here. Um, and then he gives some illustrations of principles of purity. Right? And to me, I think these are kind of like those bicycle on the elevator laws. I think that they meant something to the people of Israel, and they don't really mean as much to us today about mixing fabrics. But I think that they were ways that they were called to live in purity to stand out from the neighboring nations. All right. So now, this is not an easy sermon, guys. <laughs> so, but I think this is powerful of what God is telling us of how to live with each other. So now we talk about purity in the marriage relationship. And God gives five case studies about what this looks like. So we're going to look at these more closely because I think that they're really important. So this first situation is a man marries a woman, but then he rejects her and accuses her of impropriety. He slanders her saying that she was not actually a virgin. And the parents are then tasked with bringing proof of her virginity, for if she has been falsely accused, the man pays a fine. It's twice of the regular bride's gift, and he cannot divorce her. But if the woman is found to not be a virgin, then she will be stoned to death. What does this mean? <laughs> First of all, and I'm sorry, you may have interesting conversations with your children today. I plan on having everybody <laughs> in the room. But God says these things, and I think we need to talk about them. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully it goes well with you. Um, <laughs> First of all, 
Like we talked about with men in this culture, a woman's job, right, is to carry out the male family line. So her virginity is very important because there should be no question who the father is. And to lie about this is a serious crime. So here we have a man who marries her. He takes her and they decide, and then he decides to slander her good name. I kind of think Henry VIII here. He's trying to get rid of his wives and he's kind of coming up with something to dishonor them so that he can marry a new wife. And this is a significant accusation. And one witness alone is not enough to convict her. So if found false, he has to pay a hefty fine, and the woman is given guaranteed protection. In this culture, marriage is not about romantic love, but it is about producing an heir and making strategic alliance between families. So marriage and family for this woman, this is her career, and now this is like this woman has tenure. She cannot be divorced, and she is guaranteed safety. And God says you cannot discard your wife because you don't like her. I heard someone say that any mother would be able to produce a bloody sheet to protect the life of their daughter from an unjust man. God says you honor your marriage vow and you protect women. Our next case is a little more straightforward. You've got a man and a married woman and they're found in bed together and he says they've committed adultery and both of them must die. But the next case gets a little more complicated. It says we have a virgin who is engaged which in this culture is the same as being married. Think Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story, right? When Joseph finds out that Mary is with child, he makes plans to quietly divorce her because he's thought that she's been with someone else so, during their engagement. So engagement is legally binding. So this virgin meets a man in the city. They are found in bed together. And God says that both are found guilty of adultery and they are to be put to death. The idea here is that being in the city, it means that she has consented to this relationship. These are small towns, and the people live in close proximity. So it is not that she was being forced, uh, forced and that no one heard her scream. This terminology of the city and the country that are used here, it's used to show that this was a consensual relationship without force or coercion. This does not mean that a woman cannot be raped in the city. And it does not mean that you can tell a woman she wasn't raped because she didn't cry out. That is not what God is saying. And Jesus talks about these laws in John. So let's read this together, how Jesus interprets the laws of Moses when the religious leaders attempt to trick him. So in John 8, starting in verse 4, it says, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Right, according to the law, this woman was deserving of death, but Jesus didn't condemn her. 
He brought healing and told her to go and sin no more. And friends, if you are stuck in sexual sin, it is not the end of the story for you. There is healing, but you need to deal with it because it leads to death and separation from God. Come and find help and healing because while it takes work, you can find freedom from addictions, from lust, and from healing of past sins. Don't live in shame and fear. Come to Jesus and walk in freedom because he does not condemn you either. And also notice that this law says that both the man and the woman are guilty and should be brought to be stoned. Where is the man in this story? The laws in Deuteronomy all show the man's guilt, and it is the woman's guilt who is in question, as we see in the next case study in Deuteronomy 22:25. So here we have an engaged woman again, who is in a field and a man seizes her and he rapes her, and it is only the rapist who is found guilty, and he will die. You must not do anything to the woman. This is the same as when someone attacks another person and murders them. Unlike our culture today, the scripture assumes that the woman is innocent and that she would resist. This is a violent crime that is like murder. And God says that sexual violence is wrong. In a patriarchal tribal culture where a woman's worth is her virginity, when she is raped, she did nothing wrong. Neighboring cultural laws focus on the men being harmed in this situation and calls for revenge rape. But God says this woman is to be heard and her value goes beyond her virginity. This is astounding. God is looking out for women 3,000 years ago. Our last case study is a virgin who is not engaged and meaning that she is available for marriage. And we see a picture here of a man who seduces her and he sleeps with her and they are discovered and the man must pay a bride gift, and he marries her, and he also can never divorce her. This is not an act of violence. And the English translation is confusing here, but it is not the same word as the previous verse. This is a picture of someone convincing a young woman to be with him. And God says, you don't get to treat women this way. You are required to marry this woman and to care for her. In fact, now she even has an elevated status because she cannot be divorced. And according to Exodus 22, 16 and 17, the father also gets a say in this situation, meaning that this woman isn't just stuck with him either. This verse does not mean that a woman has to marry her rapist. Rather, this case study says that men don't get to use women for their pleasure. They are expected to treat them with respect and provide for them. And finally, God says, man may not marry his father's former wife. I think that one's pretty clear. <laughs> All right. God tells his people that keeping your vows matter. Marriage is to be honored and women are not to be used for men's pleasure and discarded. God hates sexual violence and his people need to stand against it. It matters how we treat each other. Some of the deepest hurts in our world are due to sexual misconduct, whether it is adultery, rape, or abuse. We need to talk about these things because God talks about them. And if it is part of your story, I hope that you will talk with someone and seek healing. Because God cares about your story and your pain. And Jesus is grieving with you. And God says that justice will be done in his kingdom. And those who have caused this betrayal, they will face trial under God's justice. And they will pay. 
for their crimes. Your pain is not forgotten. These laws are all about protecting women. And the church, we need to have this mindset too. Are we making room for women's voices and stories to be heard? Because God does. Our passage goes on to talk about purity in different settings. So there's some purity in public worship and there's specific regulations about who can serve in the temple and the assembly of God. There's purity in basic hygiene. Basically, it's talking about the in the army camp, they need to build a latrine because God is also present in their battle camps. My husband said this, you've got to do your duty for the Lord, but you don't do it in front of him. So a little humor in the midst of some hard things. Uh, it's also purity in the treatment of the unprivileged, and you do not return an escaped slave to a master. You must not oppress him and let him live as he prefers. And also we see cultic prostitution is banned. God does wants nothing to do with this practice. That's not how you worship God. Uh, we are to respect others in their... Oh, did I do the wrong thing? Okay. I fixed it. Good. <laughs> All right, so as we go on into 23, we see that God, uh, that's where it was, yeah, we respect for others and their property. And my summary is really God saying your words matter. You need to keep your promises. You need to share what you have, and you don't take advantage of others. And then there's some specific case studies again. We have an issue about marriage and divorce. And really, I think this here, it's not about divorce as much as it is about the grounds and the prohibition of remarriage to a mate who has previously been divorced by you. And there's a law about a newly married man does not really have any obligations or need to go to the army for a year. He's to go home and to enjoy his wife. And it says that you're not supposed to take a millstone for a loan. You don't take life away. You must not take someone's means from making a living. And it also says if a man is found kidnapping a person and treats them as property and sells them, he must die. God says no human trafficking. Hopefully this should not, this should be obvious to us, right? As God's people, that he does not want us to exploit other people. But sadly, there's a history in our church of condoning slavery and of the mistreatment of others. And if anyone tries to say that the God of the Old Testament does not care about slavery, now you have a black and white verse to point that out. Deuteronomy 24-7, you do not practice slavery. We can turn to respect for human dignity. And God asks his people to live in radical generosity. They do this by living justly with each other. They don't take advantage of someone who is poor. They provide means for people to live and to eat and to work and to make a living wage, even when that costs you something, like not getting every ounce out of your olive tree or your harvest, leaving intentionally leaving something behind. A couple of verses to highlight this. Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. 17 and 18 says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. It talks about the respect of the sanctity of others. And there's a law here that says a man dies without a son or a brother, 
his brother can, without a man dies without a son, the brother can marry his wife to produce an heir to prevent that name from being blotted out in Israel. And I think it's interesting, it says they can go down to the town elders if this brother refuses, and if he still refuses, he's going to be known for this. Now, he's now the, the man who refused to provide for his brother. And this is exactly what happens in the book of Ruth, if you're familiar with that story. We also have a, a law about if a woman violates a man by grabbing him in a, a private place in an argument that her hand should be cut off. So I think that's also a bicycle law to me. I'm not quite sure what God is asking there. But you do not... He also says you do not have different stone weights or measurements. You must use accurate weights and containers, and you must not be dishonest. And lastly, there's a few verses about these Amalekites. The people must wipe out the Amalekites from because of their treatment of Israel and their lack of fear of God. And I think God places this here because it is a case study for the people of Israel. It is an example of a people who lived greedy lives. And they took advantage of the poor and weary the people of Israel. And God reminds the people of Israel here about them so that they do not do the same mistake. They need to act differently. All right, we're almost done. <laughs> we made it through. So why do we need to read these laws about fields and harvests and Amalekites? Does it matter for us today? It feels confusing and messy to work through this Iron Age culture, but I find great comfort when I look at these laws and I see God's character. He is a just God, and he will not tolerate evil to stand because all creation deserves to be treated with dignity. When people are not treated rightly, there are consequences, and God says that he will wipe out these other gods. He will not tolerate evil being done to people in the land or to his name, and this is a good thing. When we look at the way that God presents these case studies of what it looks like to live justly with his creation, it shows a people who treat each other with dignity, justice, and keep their word. The way that God asks his people to treat women who have experienced sexual violence is not only astonishing when you look at the laws of the day for the people surrounding the nation of Israel, they put our current standards to shame. God gives these women a voice and protection from those who would do them harm. He gives space for their stories and to grieve. In a culture where women are treated as property, God says, no, they are made in my image and you don't get to abuse them. God is in the business of raising up the oppressed, providing for the poor and caring for those who are discarded by others. He brings judgment on those who continue to do evil and refuse to turn to him. God's Justice means destroying evil so that all creation will be treated with dignity. Friends, God is the one who will bring justice. We are called to live rightly with one another. If we trust that the battle truly belongs to God and that he will ultimately be the one to rid this world of evil and change hearts, are we able to live at peace with our neighbors? Can we make room for those who have been hurt and oppressed to share their stories, to grieve their losses, and to experience the fullness of what it means to be loved as a child of God? Just as God went before the Israelites, will we follow God where he is leading us? Sometimes that means we rest and enjoy the good things he gives us. And sometimes that means moving forward boldly, trusting that he will provide for what we need, even when we can't see how. Are you willing to deal with the sin in your own life? We are called to live rightly with each other. 
If you are married, are you treating your spouse with the respect and dignity that they deserve? Are you honoring your vows and forsaking all others? If not, you need to deal with your sin because it will lead you to death and it will hurt those around you. God is clear on his opinions of adultery, on abuse, exploitation, and sexual violence. There is no excuse for these behaviors. And if you are experiencing someone taking advantage of you, God says that you can and should speak up. Following God does not mean that you are supposed to take abuse. Rather, we should be actively working to stop abuse. God hears your cry, and Lord willing, we will be a people who hear and respond too. Our world is still full of brokenness as we wait for the full promise of God's return and his justice that will bring an end to the tears and the pain caused by evil. It hurts to see the injustice in our world, and we long for a time when God's justice will reign. May we continue to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to those who are hurting and oppressed. May we be known as a people who love Jesus and love like Jesus so that all may know the dignity he gives his children. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your justice, that you do not leave us, but you have come to dwell among us. You are in the business of bringing justice and mercy. May we listen to your word and follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen.